Well, I don't think anybody would be surprised if I let you in on a little insight into how my mind works and if I explain to you that it is not one of uh, my unique gift sets to clearly and helpfully articulate the interpretation and doctrine and then apply that from a large portion of Scripture. I'm not very good, in other words, of preaching a big section very well. And I think you know that. I, I like to take small bites. And uh, so as I was thinking this week on how to best break this portion up and began to consider the various parts of this letter and the various things that were happening in this church, I decided to settle on verse 20 for now, and then we'll take the broader letter as a whole in the future. The Lord Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, who was Jezebel? Hopefully you're all aware that this is not the first reference to a woman named Jezebel in the Scriptures. Jezebel was the wife of one of the most wicked kings in all of Israel's history, King Ahab. And it was sort of a staple of Ahab's wickedness that he married this wicked woman Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And even in the New Testament times, our Lord refers to the great wickedness of the cities of Tyre and Sidon. They were ancient wicked people. And Jezebel was the same. She was a wicked woman. After they were married, she seduced Ahab to, to worship her god Baal, to even build a temple to Baal in Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. She was so well known as a violent woman. At one point, I think it's safe to say the prophet Elijah was more afraid of Jezebel than he was her husband, the king. She had the prophets of God, many of them killed. And one of the most telling stories in Jezebel's history was when she went and had a godly man named Naboth put to death, wrongfully murdered, so that her husband could have his vineyard because, well, it was close and he wanted to plant his garden there and so she had Naboth killed. That's Jezebel. But who is Jezebel? When we come down to this letter, I think it's safe to say that we're not talking about the actual Jezebel. Jezebel was thrown down from a window and the Bible says that her blood splattered, startled the horses who then trampled her to death. And then by the time they came back out to bury her, the dogs had eaten everything but her skull and her feet and the palms of her hand. So this is not the actual Jezebel. She's already gone. And this is not, I don't believe, a woman in the church who actually had the name Jezebel. I believe that this was more than likely a woman in the church who had many of the same characteristics of the original Jezebel, whose reputation had continued. And that name, sort of like the name Judas, we, we put that on the, the category of names that just, you just don't use anymore. Jezebel, we're done with that one. Judas, we're done with that one. Lucifer, not, not a great name. Jezebel was sort of the same 
in, and, and still is to this day. So I don't think this was actually a woman named Jezebel. But notice it says in verse 20 that she calls herself a prophetess. In other words, she claims to speak on behalf of God, and that claim would also assume some authority. She's going to assume that when she speaks, people will listen to her. The Lord Jesus says in His own words that she's teaching and seducing My servants. So this woman, claiming to speak for God, is leading away, leading astray His servants, Christians. People in the church were being led astray by this woman's teaching. In verse 24, the Lord says that she's teaching what He calls the deep things of Satan, or what some call the deep things of Satan. More than likely, she was not coming into the church saying, hey, I'm going to do a seminar on the deep things of Satan. She probably had a sort of a, a Gnostic twist to her revelations. In other words, I'm a prophetess, I'm here to speak for God, and I've got something that... You want, you're not going to read in the old scriptures and you didn't hear this from the apostles or the, the original prophets of the New Testament church. I've got a new revelation and it's, it's deep. So if you want to know the deep things, then I can help you know the deep things. And, and then the Lord adds that these are the deep things of Satan. Teachings, doctrine, the doctrine of Satan. I think that it's safe to say this teaching was the very same thing that was being introduced in Pergamum. We can see that in Pergamum there were those who held to the doctrine of Balaam. And the fruit of that was teaching people that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Well, here she is seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So it's the, sort of the same twist, twisting of uh, a teaching. And it is the doctrine of Satan. And the Lord says, here's your problem. You're tolerating this woman, Jezebel. You're letting her continue to do what she's been doing. So to summarize the exposition, there was a woman in the church in Thyatira claiming to receive revelation from God, claiming to speak for God, teaching the doctrine of Satan, but she was actually seducing believers to follow her claims and they were beginning to actually practice what in Pergamum was only being introduced. Now this is very relevant in our day, and very relevant to our own congregation. As I thought on this, meditated prayerfully on what was happening in Thyatira, and, was, and tried to imagine what, what this might look like coming down through the ages to us, I was compelled to sort of blow a trumpet of warning. And so here's the warning. Chief... Among the schemes of Satan in his relentless attack against the kingdom of Jesus Christ has been the intentional targeting and use of women to distract, to draw off course, to wound, to cripple, and even destroy faithful men. Let me say it one more time. There's a lot of commas here. Chief among the schemes of Satan in his relentless attack upon the kingdom of Jesus Christ has been the intentional targeting and use of women to distract, to draw off course, to wound, to cripple, and to destroy faithful men. 
Now, we know that there are a lot of people who give the devil too much credit. We, we've all been in those services where if a light bulb blows out, well, the devil's in the light fixtures. If the microphone goes out, well, the devil's in the sound system. The, the devil is apparently really against our, you know, our entertaining worship services, so he's just attacking everything. You talk to these people, every sin in their lives is it's the devil's fault. The devil got to me. The devil, the devil won today. And so they're, they're basically culpable of nothing. They are pawns in his hand. And eventually, once the devil is done away with, well, they'll finally get to achieve that holiness that they always wanted but couldn't in this life. The other extreme that we can swing to is to not give the devil any credit. To act like he, he doesn't exist, to completely ignore him, to, to sort of treat the devil, put him in this spiritual category of stuff that only the Roman Catholics talk about. You know, the devil and his, his demons. Now, we don't want to go to either one of those extremes. We have to have a biblical understanding of how the devil works and what he's doing. First, we know from Scripture that the devil has a kingdom. He has a kingdom. He has a, a sphere of... of Dominion of authority where he exercises power. He works in his kingdom. The Lord Jesus himself said, If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, the devil would never do anything to contradict his own work. He's not that stupid. He works and attempts to advance his own kingdom. Later on, the Lord refers to him as the ruler of this world, and Paul in 2 Corinthians calls him the God of this world. So if we're operating under the impression that the devil doesn't have any power and he can't do anything, and all I need to do is get in my prayer place and say, now you listen here, devil, you can't touch me today, we're fooled. We're, 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 we're not thinking biblically. The devil does have a kingdom, and he does have one sole aim in his kingdom work, and that is to overthrow the kingdom of Christ. We'll see this later on in the book of the Revelation. But you'll remember back when we did the, the broad overview, the, the things that come upon the saints in this life are really the fruit of the devil's hatred for the Lord Jesus and His kingdom. In Revelation chapter 12, we read that the dragon became furious with the woman, that is the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, up until, if you read the whole chapter, up until Christ is born and lives and dies and ascends into glory, the devil's chief goal is stop that seed from winning. Stop him from coming into the world. Once he realized he failed at that, now his, he has turned his attention on the, the saints, the people of God who are in the world, the body of Christ. And he wages war. That's his goal. Overthrow the kingdom. We also know from Scripture that the devil has schemes. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word is, and listen to see if you can hear an English word, methodeia. You hear the word methods. Deceptive, systematic, pre-thought plans. The devil has them. He's not flying by the seat of his pants. He has schemes. Now we can compare that to Paul's earlier language in Ephesians 4. He, he doesn't want us to be like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, 
by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now we might ask, well, are they, are they devilish schemes or are they human schemes? And the answer is yes. The devil has never had and still has no problem using human beings in his attack against Christ and His bride. 1 Peter 5.8, one of the more well-known texts says, Be sober-minded. These are commands. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I am, I'm, I'm fascinated with the animal kingdom. So I've, I've seen this. Lions don't just spend 24 hours a day just prowling around. When they get a target in sight, they go down to the ground. And they will crawl as long as it takes that they, that they need to take to be quiet, as slowly as they have to be, dragging their bellies on the ground, their, their chins almost scraping the ground to get close enough to pounce on their prey. A lion doesn't get, go in his closet and put on real tree. Because his camouflage is the, the landscape, the, the natural vegetation of his, of his environment. And this is how the devil is. He's like a lion. He uses, and hear this, he uses what is to us normal, natural, even monotonous as his camouflage. He uses these things to catch us when we are least suspecting it. So the devil has power. He has a goal in mind. He has schemes that he uses to accomplish that goal. He uses people to accomplish that goal. And one of his schemes, I would say the chief amongst his schemes, is to target women and to use them to do the very opposite of what they were created to do, which is to encourage and help and support and motivate. He uses them to distract and to draw off course and to wound and to cripple and destroy faithful men. This was happening in Thyatira, and it continues to happen in the church in all times and all places. Now, let me give some qualifications, and hopefully these qualifications will allow all of our guards to go back down, because if you are a daughter of Adam, as soon as I begin to say some of the things I've said, your guard begins to go up. Well, what do you mean? What are you saying? Now, if I were to say things like, the, the murderer is behind bars, the rapist has been convicted, the thief has been captured, the racist has been dealt with, the sexist has been spoken to. You don't picture women. We're all thinking of men when I use those words because we just assume that those are the types of sins that only men can commit. Your guard doesn't go up, but as soon as I say women, well, of course your guard goes up because you're picturing women and that's the point. So, but I want you to let your guard down because I'm not trying to lay all of the blame for sin at the feet of women. I'm not even laying the blame of sins which involve men and women at the feet of the women involved. I'm not removing any blame for any sin from any man involved in any sin. And I'm not speaking of women as if you are more fallen than men or as if you are more susceptible to sin than men. Now there are sins that women are more susceptible to and there are sins that men are more susceptible to but when we speak of sin in general women are not more susceptible and men less susceptible. We're all susceptible to sin. 
What I want is that for the women of our church to understand the immense influence that you have and to be wise to the schemes of the devil in ancient times and down through to our own day. He knows that you have influence. He knows it. A lot of you don't know it. He knows it. He knows you have influence. He knows what is your natural bent because of sin. He knows what a man's natural bent is because of sin. And if you are not aware of these things, then you're like a gazelle eating grass up to its belly. Completely clueless. Like we would say, like a sitting duck. You're just waiting to be attacked. Because He knows things that very often we don't know or we've not considered. Chief among the schemes of Satan in his relentless attack upon the kingdom of Christ has been to target women and to use them to distract, to draw off course, to wound, to cripple, and to destroy faithful men. Now what I want to do for the next three weeks is break this down into three headings. First, the reality of this scheme. Then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at the reason behind this scheme. Why has He chosen this scheme and why does it work? And then after that, we'll consider our response. How, how should we respond? So first then, the reality of this scheme. I just want to draw your attention to the Scriptures and show you this theme. If you've never noticed it, I want you to see it. This theme. My assumptions, again, are that the devil has power, that the devil has a plan, that the devil has schemes, and that he uses human beings as pawns in his schemes. And at the same time, when we sin, we are completely culpable for our sins. We are responsible. Throughout the Scriptures, the single most effective stumbling block causing the most destruction, which focuses exclusively at men, almost exclusively at men, is women. You've probably heard someone say the single greatest uh, cause of divorce in our day is marriage. It's, it's very similar. And we'll see next week that this is not because women are inherently bad for men. It's because women are so important to men, so crucial to what God is doing in our world. The devil knows it. We don't know it. We don't believe it. So we let our guard down. And these sins and these things that we commit cover a broad range. I'm thinking primarily of the sins that deal with a man and a woman and their relationship with one another. For example, they might be sins... Inside a legitimate marriage. You've got a God-honoring husband and a God-honoring woman and they're just trying to figure out what their different roles are and how that plays out. That's, that's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a fight. The sins might involve sexual immorality outside the marriage. They might involve adultery once we are in the, the confines of a covenant marriage. These sins might be actual physical activities. They might simply be the lust of the eyes or the intentions of the heart. There, there's a plethora of ways in which these sins manifest themselves. But what I want you to see is it's all over the Scriptures. This litters the Scriptures. Now when I begin to talk about the devil using a woman to cripple, to, to wound, to bring down a man... Where's the first place our mind goes to in the Scriptures? The garden. It goes, our minds go to the garden. Let's, let's turn to the garden. We start in the garden. 
It's amazing how often we talk about creation ordinances. Creation ordinances. The husband and the wife and the marriage and the home and taking dominion. The creation ordinances, the Sabbath. But we don't realize the devil has his own creation schemes. Things that he started at the very beginning. They've worked perfectly ever since and so he just continues to use them. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some, also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now notice, the serpent was crafty. He was wise. He had taken the time to sit and to think and to calculate and concoct a plan of attack. He was wise and the next thing we see, he said to the woman. He spoke to her. Now was this an individual attack? Was the serpent thinking, well, if I can, I'll, I'll just go after the woman. There's only two people on the face of the planet. Once I get that woman... My job is done and we'll call it a day. And I don't, I don't believe that's what he was doing. Genesis chapter 2 made it clear that the woman had no reason for existence apart from her head and her counterpart, her husband. That's why she was created. Adam was the son of God. Adam was the first priest. He was placed in the garden to work it and keep it. He'd already displayed his rule over the animals. Adam was the one in need of a suitable helper meet for him. But the devil made no attempt to approach Adam because he knew, I don't need to. The relationship that the woman shared with her husband was so intimate, a rib taken from his side. Her role was so significant to what Adam was doing. Her person was so delightsome to Adam. This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, that the serpent in his craftiness and in his scheming knew, if I get her, I got him. That's all I have to do. And it worked. Now think about how significant that is. Mankind created in God's image a man to lead, a woman to help the man for his good, for his betterment, for companionship, for procreation, for fulfilling the dominion mandate. That order, a man and a wife put together, that thing attacked by the serpent, used as a tool against mankind. That's what the devil was doing. Now, that brings us to the fall itself and the curse that came from it. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They, they hid from one another. That, one, that union that was at, just previous to this, a shameless union, is now one of embarrassment and self-preservation. I've got to hide myself from that person. Why? 
Does that person mean any harm to you? Have they ever shown any contempt for you at all? Well, no, but i got to hide. Why? Because of sin. Verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That once immediate communion that they shared, broken, now down into cowering fear. Has this God ever done anything to harm you? Has He ever been anything but good? Well, no, but I've got to get away. Why? Because you know you're a sinner. Verse 12, the man said, in answering to God, The woman whom you gave to be with me, with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The woman for whom he had rejoiced, he throws her under the bus of God's wrath. It was her. You gave her to me, she gave me the fruit. Adam no longer acted as a responsible leader and head. He's turned into a selfish, blame-shifting coward. It's her fault. Now, was Adam guilty? Yes. Was Eve guilty? Yes. Was the serpent wise in his schemes? Absolutely. He was crafty. When we get to God's pronouncement of the the fruit of the curse, He says at the end of verse 16, Speaking to the woman, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So now, her heartfelt inclination would be against her husband. It would be to overthrow him, to try to dominate him. But his goal is the same. You have to lead her. He will be your ruler, your head. And so the roles which were once a blessed design, now because of sin, have become an arduous task that both male and female constantly seek to overthrow, to get out of. Now what does that look like? Well, for women, rather than being in subjection to their husband, they have this desire to exercise rule over their husband. Men, rather than taking the lead, will gladly, willfully subject themselves to that authority of their wives. Women desire to lead. They want to exercise authority. They want to display power to conquer men. And men say, please conquer me. Just take it. Just take the authority. Take the responsibility. I don't want it. And this isn't just manifested within the confines of marriage. this, This is manifested in the universal casting off of the bonds of marriage. The hatred of marriage completely is all because people hate God's Design for men and women. The whole ordinance is rejected. The the foundation stone of human civilization and society is removed. Now, men, all human beings, we we are in sin, ruled by our lusts. But when, when I say men now, biological males are ruled by their lusts, the foremost of which is their sexual lust. And therefore, women who are the object of this lust now have what we might call a one-up on men. And men, in order to satisfy that sensual appetite, that, that lust, that craving, they will abdicate their duties. They will hand over their power. We've all heard of a woman called a tease. Now why do we say that? Because she is dangling before a man something she knows he wants but can't have until he bows at her feet. 
It's, it's no different than teaching a dog to sit with a treat. The dog doesn't know why it's sitting. The dog doesn't know why we use seats and chairs. But he knows if I put this part of me down, I get that. And it smells good. Animal appetites rule the actions of that dog. Now, she is a devilish woman who uses this to her advantage in any way. But she is a foolish woman who ignores the reality of Satan's plan to target her and use her in this way. She might not think she's doing it. Now, whether this is consciously taking all of this into consideration or just acting on animal instincts, the the devil will continue to use men or women to conquer men. He uses this base lust in a man to bring about his downfall. Is the man guilty? Absolutely. He's not, no responsibility is removed from him. But is the serpent crafty? That's the point. There's none more crafty than him. After the fall, remember God has promised that one would come from the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. So what does the serpent do? He attacks the seed of the woman. He wages war against the godly line. Genesis chapter 6. Verses 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now in this text, the sons of God are the, the, those coming from the godly line of Seth, and the daughters of man are the offspring of the wicked line. And notice, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They were caught in this snare of physical beauty, and they took as their wives any they chose. What's the significance of that? They were casting off Godliness, disregarding purity, disregarding any chastity. They said, I'm going to go after whatever looks good to my eyes. Whatever looked like it might satisfy this animal passion in me of my physical eyes. A dog will travel miles following the scent of its nose to find a mate. And a man is no better just because he uses his eyes rather than his nose. And a woman is no better just because she pays top dollar to do synthetically what a dog does naturally, make herself look good and smell good so that she can draw a man beneath her feet. This is what's been happening from the dawn of time. It worked the first time. The devil said, hey, I'll keep doing it. And it still works. The devil's scheme in order to stop the Messiah from coming into the world, from setting up his kingdom, from advancing his kingdom, has been this. And this this is one of his... One of his primary methods. Another ancient text is found in Job. We know that Job was a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. And Job himself says in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Now all the women in the room are thinking, why did Job have to do this? What's, What's the deal? And all the men are saying, I know exactly why he had to do that. Why a covenant? Why does he have to deal with his soul and enter into an agreement with himself that he's not going to look, that he's not going to gaze? Why was such an extremity taken by a godly man? All of the, the ladies say and all of the men say, we know exactly why he had to do it. 
Job understood, Job knew, Job had experienced the temptation which is common to every son of Adam. Job recognized that he had this corruption within him that would would draw the eyes of a man to look and then to to take a second look and then a a third look and then a, a gaze at a woman who is not his wife. And he knew that a gaze might lead to a thought and a thought entertained in his mind would destroy him. He knew it. And so he said, it's worth me making a covenant with my eyes. Another one, a scene that we've, we've rehashed several times recently. Balak wants Israel wiped out. Another scheme of the devil. We've got to get them off this earth. Balaam can't pronounce a curse, so he suggests a different plan. Numbers 25.1, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab on the advice of Balaam. Did, did Balaam just think, hey, I don't know if it might work. I don't, maybe, here's an idea. Let's just say perhaps that those men are attracted to women. And No, he knew. This is how you get men. Parade the women in front of them. And it was on his advice that this plan was carried out because he knew that the lust of the eyes of a man when set upon an object of physical beauty, no matter the obstacles in that path or the consequences on the other side of that path, when that sets in place the movement of thoughts and eyes and hormones and imaginations, it can compel a man to do anything, anything to satisfy himself because he becomes almost like an animal, unwilling to control his urges. And it worked. We come to the book of Judges. The Israelites have entered into the land where the Messiah would be born, where he would live, where he would die, where he would be raised from the dead. But they failed to remove all of the inhabitants. Judges chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Notice, their daughters, the daughters of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, their daughters they took to themselves. And that led them into this idolatry of serving their gods. Samson was sort of the staple example of this sin. In Judges chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people? that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. In a time when every man done what was right in his own eyes, Samson said, She looks fine to me. He saw her, didn't talk to her, didn't inquire about her, didn't need to know if she was godly or not. He saw her and he said, I demand her. She looks right to me, I'll take her. Judges 16.1, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute and went in to her. Judges 16.4 and 5, after this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, 
And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And we know how the story ends. Samson, God's appointed judge, seduced, humbled, and eventually leads to his own death because of this seduction. Another one of the most popular stories of this nature is the story of David. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Notice, he saw. He saw that she was beautiful. Someone says, Is not this somebody else's wife? He says, I'll take her. David has her, cousin, her husband killed. Why? To satisfy the lust of his flesh, his eyes. Then David's son Solomon, 1 Kings 11, 1-4. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Many people say, well, Solomon just did this because of the political alliances. Well, that was a part of it, but it says he clung to them in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Concubines don't, don't solidify any political alliance. That's all for sensual pleasure. It says, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. When the kingdom was at the greatest height and power, the greatest prosperity, Solomon turned to idolatry because of his lust for women. And then we get to the Proverbs. And we have a father who's just trying to convey some wisdom to his son. In the Proverbs, there are at least 70 verses dealing with the temptations of the forbidden woman. Here's just a sampling. Proverbs 5.3 For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Now we know honey is sweet, honey is appetizing. When this woman speaks, her words are smooth and they entice, they go down easy. Proverbs 5.20, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Intoxicated. Inebriated, as with drugs, as with alcohol. I, I, I'm sorry, officer. I, I didn't know I crossed the yellow line. How can you not know? Well, because I'm drunk. My mind doesn't think right. My body doesn't function right. Intoxicated. This is what happens in the arms of a forbidden woman. It becomes... A man becomes intoxicated, rendered unable to think clearly. The whole mind goes cloudy. And he says, why would you let that happen? Proverbs 6, 24 and 25, he speaks to preserve his son from evil woman. He says, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Her, her tongue is smooth. Her beauty is desirable. She captures with her eyelashes. 
Proverbs 7, 5, to keep you from the forbidden woman and from the adulteress with her smooth words. Proverbs 23, 27 and 28, for a prostitute is a deep pit. An adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. A deep pit, an unescapable trap. Notice that language over and over. It's a trap. It's a snare. It will take you over. It will rule you. It will draw you in. It will entangle you. It will render you powerless, cloud your mind. You won't be able to think. You won't function properly. Solomon, from his experience, had learned... The chief among the schemes of the devil in his attack against the kingdom of Christ was to use women to distract and to cripple and even destroy faithful men. Now, are the men guilty? Absolutely. Is any responsibility whatsoever taken from them if they were seduced? Absolutely not. Does this imply that every time there's a sin between a man and a woman, the woman is always the initiator? Absolutely not. The idea is the devil knows how this relationship thing works. He knows how our minds are operating and he's using it. He's crafty, none craftier than the devil. This is why Lemuel's mother says, Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. She was a woman. She knew how women operate. She knew the ways of women. She understood the influence of a seductive woman. And she understood that as a man of power, if he yielded to a woman, it was all gone. She understood that. Now we could move into church history or just human history. We could address countless men, even of just worldly power, who've lost it all because they could not control their animal lust. School teachers caught in sexual perversion, lose it all. Their, their reputation, their, their job, any, any hope for a future job, it's gone. But then we could move in and start making a list of men in our own day that we would once have considered godly men, but who destroyed their entire testimony because they could not rule over their lusts. I could name two men right now, first name, last name, who were elders in Reformed Baptist churches just like ours who are sitting in a prison cell right now because they could not control their lust. It ruled them rather than them ruling over it. Now what's the point of all this? Again, I'm not speaking primarily to the men. This is not a warning really to the men. I mean, I hope that that is a byproduct of this study to remind you that the devil is wise to this. But if you're a man, nothing I've said surprises you. You know it full well. You've read the stories. You've experienced it. And when we read these dark and depraved and twisted stories in Scripture, I know such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been justified. You've been sanctified. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As a matter of fact, if I hadn't read that text, there might be some men in here who are fighting the, 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 the urge to flip, to find out and make sure that text is still in Scripture. You were washed. It's still there, brothers. It's still there. If you've been to Golgotha, it's gone. It's washed. It's been cleansed. If you've not been to Calvary, the fountain still flows. Go to Christ. When He washes in His blood, it's gone. He washes from these sins. But I'm not speaking primarily to warn 
men, although I hope you are warned, I'm speaking to the women because my concern is for our ladies. Women who don't understand how a man's mind works. Women who who really can't comprehend this animal passion. I want you to get some insight into the schemes of the devil and I want our women to understand you've got a target on your back. Now here's the objection that you're thinking. Well, I'm not very attractive and so the devil would never use me in this way. Ladies, it's not about anatomy. Are you married? Are you married to a Christian man, a man who's seeking to be godly? If you can say yes, then you have personal access to the one of the most scarce and most sacred places on planet earth, which is the home life, the thought life, the family life of a Christian man. You're, you're at ground zero. And your actions and your time, how you spend your time, what you do throughout the day, your words, your looks, or your failure to look, your glances, your responses, or failure to respond, your willingness to submit to His leadership, or your unwillingness, your support for Him and encouragement of Him, or your lack of support, all of these have the power to break that man and render him useless. Every bit of it. You think you don't have that power. You've been given that power by God Almighty. He gave you to that man for these purposes. You have that power. You have the power to motivate him to godliness or push him into the arms of those desires that are already naturally in his heart. Will he be guilty? Absolutely. If we're going to have men who are able to go out and fight for Christ's kingdom, then we've got to have women who know their role who know their job, who are strong in the Lord, and who are on guard against the evil one. We've got to know his schemes. We cannot remain ignorant to his schemes. Here's the next objection when we hear that. We know that. We're stay-at-home moms. Exactly. That is the problem. We sum up the entire duty of a woman in negation and reduction. I'm doing my job because I don't go out there and we reduce the role to mom. Summarize the... So I'm assuming that if you don't have kids or when your kids grow up, you you don't have any use to exist anymore. No more usefulness in the kingdom of Christ if if you're not doing these things. Again, the, the assault of Satan very often comes to us in an area which becomes to us, even if it's only recently, it has become to us natural and normal and monotonous where we think we're already doing what we're supposed to be doing. Well, I'm already a stay-at-home mom. What else is there to do? You've not understood your role. And there are a lot of men who can't fight. They can't do what a man's called to do because they're busy at home doing their wife's job. So perhaps the effect of the fall... In our circles, again, I don't, I don't care what other churches are doing. In our circles, in our church, the effect of the fall and this, this scheme of the devil is not, probably not going to be so blatant as a wife who says, I will not submit to my husband. Or a husband who says, I will not lead my wife. Because we've been taught these things and I believe that we are all making a conscious effort to fulfill these roles But the effect might be a little more subtle. 
It might be as subtle as a wife who thinks that her tasks are just too difficult. And so she just waits for her husband to get home so that she can have some help. Did God actually say you were His helper? What He meant was He's your helper. Or we might have a husband who feels like working more than 38 and a half hours in a week is just too much because he's got to get home and help his wife do her job. God gave us six days to labor. You know why? Because He knew it would take us six days to get our labor done. If, you, if you're getting your labor done in this mystical 40-hour work week that God didn't know about, you've figured out something that is deeper than the wisdom of God. God gave us six days to work because He knew we needed six days to work. You're not a Sabbatarian just because you go to church on Sunday if you're not working six days in the week. But we get, this, we, we, we get worldly philosophies that come in and start telling us, well, no, it, it should be like this. And, well, you should probably do it like this. And, and maybe this will work too. And none of it's found in Scripture. We're just making it all up. And we wonder why we feel like we're beating our heads against the wall trying to accomplish anything. Somewhere even Christian men have gotten this idea that To be a godly husband is barely more than just being a stay-at-home mom. Not because he's not going to work, but because she has been convinced by some teacher somewhere that she just needs to sit at home all day. Her job is just sit at home all day and wait for your husband to get home, honey, and give you a list of chores to do. Don't, don't, Don't get too busy. He needs to explain this to you. And that's not true. We fall into this trap where, as men, we've not done our job in the home so that when we leave, our wives don't know what their job is. Your job is to help her understand her job so that when you leave, she can do it. She's fine. We're a wife. We have situations where wives are so submissive submissive to their husbands that they, they dare not move a muscle. Unless the husband gives the order. Now, dear, you can do this. She doesn't sit down. Well, now, dear, you can do this. That's not complementarianism. That's failure. When a man is doing his job, a wife is going to know what her job is. And it's not the same job. Complementarianism. That's what we call this. The biblical ordering of husbands and wives. They complement one another. Right? So if two things are doing the same thing, they're not complementing each other, they're just doing the same thing. When two things complement each other, one's doing one thing and one's doing something completely different. And when they're both doing their job, the whole machine rolls smoothly. When a man rules his household well, his wife will be able to step up as house manager and run the show. And so the devil knows that for us in our reformed family integrated thinking that if he can convince men that if you're not on the premises of your home, you're a derelict father, or if he convince a wife that you're basically just like the oldest of the children, just wait, let your husband tell you everything to do. The, he, he, the devil knows I can destroy this home, render it absolutely impotent because nobody knows what they're supposed to be doing. So the battle for souls rages around us. And well-meaning Christian men are at home in their apron helping their wives dry the dishes. Now, is it wrong for a man to help his wife dry the dishes? Absolutely not. It's a mindset that we have to adjust. Ladies, if your husband is out doing what God's called him to do, but his mind is constantly at home 
plagued with the thought that his wife is incompetent to begin and execute and complete a task, he's not going to be able to think clearly, to give himself clearly to what he's called to do. Now that doesn't mean you are incompetent, but if he has that thinking, if he's convinced that that's the case, he's not going to be able to do his job. The interesting thing is if I were talking about an actual battle, like a physical war, where we were fighting for our freedom on the soil of our nation, and I said the men have been called to go out and fight, all the, we men, we would, we would stand to the, to the occasion. We'd puff our chests out and we'd say, I must go fight. And the women would stay at the door and wave the handkerchief and say, you go, honey, I've got this. You go, you fight. But when we bring this into the realm of the kingdom of Christ, all of a sudden it's too much for a woman to stay at home and manage her household while her husband goes and fights when he's away. Now what does that look like? It might just be his God-given vocation. He's got a job to do. He's got to go to work. Or it might be he has to help another man or another family do something after work. Or he might be in the study preparing for family worship or in another bedroom on his knees praying for the souls of his children. These are the things that might draw a man away in his leadership. And a wife has to know that it is her job to take care of things while he's doing his task. What God's called him to do. Ladies, you've got a responsibility laid at your feet in the kingdom of God that is almost indescribable. I wish I could describe it. And your carriage of yourself and your, yourselves and your, your doing your duty is of unimaginable consequence for good or for bad. And I, and I don't just mean, well, you're just raising the next generation. No, in this generation, you've got a job to do now for your husband who's fighting now. This generation. Think about evangelism. We often say when we speak of things like open air preaching and outreach and we want to we want to do the women a service i can't stand men who talk about evangelism as if the only thing that you can do is go out and preach in the open air because i know my wife shares the gospel with our children daily and so we want to make very clear well we're not expecting every single person in the congregation to go out and preach in the open air i mean what about our wives well of course not the wives are not called to that so then, who is to go? Well, that would, leave the, that would leave the men. Yeah, the men are supposed to do that. Well, well, the men can't go and do that if they've got to stay home and do her job too. Somebody's got to go and somebody's got to stay, you see. And Christian women, just like Christian men, you start reading biographies, ladies, and you're going to be in for, like, like I am, I read biographies, and I realize I'm in a world of hurt on page two. Because I realize I've got a long heritage of strong, godly men. And I feel like their shoes are this long. You start reading the biographies of godly women and you're going to find out you've got a strong heritage, strong, godly women. And the devil knows this. He knows this. So he will use worldly philosophies and little things that sound great to get you to believe that your job is just too much. You've got to, he, he, can't, he can't be gone. You've got to have him here. I met with a pastor recently whose wife had just had their first child. And all, all three of them came to the meeting. This was a pastor's meeting. They all three came to the meeting. And he told me they were coming. I said, that would be great. I'll bring mine too. 
So my wife and my children came. We had a meeting together, pastor's meeting. Our families are there. He could barely engage in eye contact or conversation because he was so worried about doing his wife's job with their child. Now I know that there, there's that new dad nervousness. I get it. But looking back, I was able to rejoice as I sat and ate my food and engaged in conversation and tried to help this man along while my wife took care of all of our kids, ate her food, then got up and held his baby so his wife could eat, and I never had to think a thing about it. We all want men to step up, right? We, we think men should step up. Our society needs to step up. If you set a, if you set a lion loose, a man-eating lion on, loose in the United States, he'd go starving because there are no men. We all want the men to step up, but that requires both Parties. We all have to step up. And if Satan can convince you, ladies, to just... Or if he can't convince you to throw off the headship of your husband, he'll just convince you you're incompetent. You're weak. Your role is too much. You're too delicate. Or that the, the 21st century blog mom is, is normal. You know, the, the ladies who like sleep till 11... Their kids wake them up, destroying the house. They get up, they see the house is destroyed. They sit down for three hours and write a blog about how, well, honey, the house is just going to be messy and you just got to get used to this and it's just a hard life and this is just how we are. And, we're just, and, and they want to chalk everything up to grace and how it's just so difficult when really, no, that's not normal. That's not normal. The reason your children are the way they are is because you're writing a blog for three days a week or four days a week. That's not normal. Men, if Satan can convince you to abdicate your responsibility, I'm sorry, if he can't convince you, then he'll just convince you that your job is to basically micromanage everything. I'm the, I'm the head of the household. So then I've got to micromanage every single thing that happens. And that's not how it's supposed to be. You're not a chaperone. Christian women are to be strong and mighty in the faith, and workers. When Satan convinces us of this, it renders both the husband and wife, the father and the mother, useless. He can, he can take a godly household and render it impotent under the guise of godly patriarchy and complementarianism. We think we're doing what we're supposed to do, and we're not doing anything. We're, and we're still busy all the time. So here's... There is a, a, a vision, a biblical mindset that corrects the problem. And it is realizing that our marriages and our homes are not supreme. That they are a means to a greater end. We're doing something bigger. Now the devil has that goal in mind. He knows that. He, he, he's, he's going after big things. Kingdom kingdom-destroying things. He understands that. But if we don't have that greater end in mind, we're going to feel like we're winning lots of little battles and we're not doing anything. We're, we're losing the war. We have to be wise to His schemes and we have to seriously evaluate areas where we feel like we're above attack. You know, we, we, we take that one step and we say, well, I did it. There, I'm good. I don't need to hear another sermon about it. I don't need a sermon about family worship. I don't need a sermon about headship. I don't need any, I don't need any of that because I'm already doing that. That's where he's coming. That's where he's coming to attack. We have to be wise to that. So hopefully I've at least gotten your attention, given you some things to bring to the Lord. One of our greatest weapons is prayer. 
It's prayer. The story goes that Susanna Wesley would throw her apron up over her head for a few hours a day with, I forget how many kids they had, a bunch, 10 or 12 maybe, to pray. Prayer is a great weapon. So let's pray that God would help us in these matters.